Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, I am going to talk about uh, defending wealth. And that is going to be, well, I don't think it's that difficult to do, but I think it's an unusual thing to do these days in the times that we live in. But before that, I would like to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com that you should go check out if you have any interest in getting some of the free resources that we offer there, various downloads and lists that you can join, free books, uh, free webinars, things like that. Also, the place where you would go to sign up for our uh, accredited investor club if you're interested in joining and potentially having exposure to private opportunities that require you to be an accredited investor and you are an accredited investor, you should go check it out, wealthformula.com and join Investor Club. As for uh, today, getting back to the topic of the war against the wealthy. So when times get tough, you know, it's always easier to have a scapegoat. After all, it is easier to blame an enemy than an unfortunate circumstance. And the enemy uh, of course, can be punished and held responsible, whereas a circumstance cannot. Of course, the most extreme example of this in modern history uh, is the vilification and heinous acts uh, towards the Jews in Germany during World War II. Reparations for World War I left Germany in a world of economic hurt. And you see all those pictures of Weimar Germany and carts of money and all that inflation that, that was a result of those reparations. And when that happened, of course, Hitler demonized the Jews. Ultimately, is the root of the problem as uh, many of them were successful professionals and, and, and business people. Uh, and it was an opportunity to mobilize the country against an enemy uh, and that it ended up being the Jewish people. Of course, that's a simplification, but, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, that's kind of what happened. And these days, as wealth disparities continue throughout the developed nations, uh, we're seeing a, a more subtle version, uh, maybe a little bit less violent. Hopefully it continues that's, uh, to stay not violent, but significantly violent. But we see a subtle version of demagoguery playing out in real time in the form of nationalism, not only in this country, but in, in several countries uh, throughout the world. And again, it, it's again, it's easier to blame someone or a group of people for problems than it is to accept a circumstance that cannot be punished 
per se. So it makes sense. The blame game is ultimately human nature. It's a common theme throughout history and in everyday life. It allows us to feel in control when we're not in control uh, because, you know, if, if, if there's someone you can take down and make the problem go away, then that feels a lot better to us. So is that what's behind all of the socialist rhetoric out there these days? That's the question. And I kind of think it is. You know, as a child in the 1980s, you know, during the Reagan era, of course I was a kid, so maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seemed like the wealthy were really aspirational figures, right? I mean, socialist voices blaming the rich for all it is wrong uh, with the world were in the minority. And of course we had a um, you know, we had a communist enemy in the Cold War in the Soviet Union, and so maybe that helped for us to, you know, find blame with them and not within ourselves. But anyway, now you can't turn on the television without hearing about how horrible and greedy the rich are and how they get rich off of, you know, the shoulders of others and, and how they don't pay their fair share of taxes and, and, and do their fair share of anything. Uh, like they're a bunch of, uh, you know, worthless leeches. You know, now, although few politicians and public figures would actually come to the rescue of millionaires and billionaires in any kind of moral argument, the truth does matter. And that is what leads us to today's conversation with my guest and Wealth Formula podcast today, who believes that, you know, doing a deep dive on the topic is useful. It's a useful endeavor. His name is Derek Bullen. And Derek has written a book called In Defense of Wealth, A Modest Rebuttal to the Charge the Rich Are Bad for Society, which is pretty self-explanatory. And we're going to hear his argument that is steeped in, in reality and in, in data and research after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Derek Bullen. Uh, Derek's founder and CEO of SI Systems, one of the largest professional services companies in Canada with thousands of information technology consultants working on projects for blue chip corporations and government agencies across Canada. He's also the author of In Defense of Wealth, a modest rebuttal to the charge, the rich are bad for society, which is something we've heard quite a bit lately. Derek, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Buck. Pleasure to be here. 
So you're an entrepreneur, and I'm curious. I mean, obviously, we, we were talking offline. You're very much into entrepreneurship. What inspired you to write a book about defending wealth? You know, it was it was three conversations that I had. Um, the, the first being that uh, one of my high school friends after the Panama Papers came out said, hey, you've got money. If you're hiding it offshore, you know, you better bring it back or you should leave Canada. And it was pretty bold for someone to actually say that, a friend to say that on Facebook. And I actually checked into it. And I wrote him back and I said, you know, the top 10% of income earners in Canada is everybody earning 90 grand or more. It's not a very high bar. And I said, and we pay for half of the income taxes. And I'm like, you could wish that we weren't here, but if we weren't, you would have half the hospitals, half the schools, half the roads, half the firemen, half of everything. Because there's very few of us that are earning more than 90, uh, 90 grand a year, uh, apparently. We're all working very hard for it and we're carrying half the load. And so I was like, I gotta get that narrative out. Cause when I told him, he was like, holy cow, I had no idea. And the other conversation was at a, a private clinic in the States. In, in Canada, we have public health care, which is wonderful for lots of acute conditions. But if you have something that's elective, it's a very long uh, wait list. The, the care is good, but it's a long wait list. So uh, Canadians who can will go to the States for those um, operations. And so anyways, I was in a clinic and uh, an employee of Amazon was in an extensive rehab program, like one year expensive rehab program. But he couldn't say enough how Amazon didn't pay any taxes and it wasn't fair and they're making all this money on top of everyone. And I, I looked into, into it and I was like, you know, Amazon could pay like 60 billion in taxes, but they have an offset. They're investing 62 million in research and development. And I told the guy, I said, if a company in Canada invested 62 billion a year in research and development, that would be like NASA moving to Canada, like, like the jobs, the spinoff, everything we create. It's amazing. And I'm like, it's, it, it, it's, it's uh, an elective by the government. You can spend on taxes or you can spend an R and D, but they're, they're, drilling 62 billion into the econ economy of fresh cash. Anyways, he didn't talk to me for the rest of the time in the clinic. He'd go outside to, to have his IVs and everything like that. But I thought, you know, I got to get this narrative out. Like uh, yeah, people just don't understand that it's hard to make money. It's even harder to keep it. And that when you make a lot of money, you, you pay yourself last. You pay out a phenomenal amount of money before you take a payday yourself. So that was my inspiration for the book. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is, as you, you've called it, sort of the war against the wealthy, right? And then and, uh, and, and it's misguided. Um, is this, you know, you tell me about what, what your perspective is. Is this a phenomena that's been around forever? Is it getting worse? Is it changing? I mean, I mean, from, from the, in the U.S., I mean, I do see it as very much a, a, you know, a new phenomenon, at least in my lifetime. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a pendulum. I don't know, but you know, I can, uh, I was a kid in the eighties and everybody was excited about getting wealthy and, and, you know, idolize rich people. And, and I even feel like in the nineties, that was the case. And, you know, the, the, um, but in the last few years with the rise of a lot of know, characters in the U.S. and pop, I mean, I'm not getting into politics, but, you know, the rhetoric that comes with the uh, AOCs and all that um, about Elizabeth Warren, about vilification of the rich. Is this, 
you, in your perspective, is this new? Is this evolving? How is it? Is it you know? How, or is well, it just? I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the facts. I'll tell you the facts. So, in the United States, the political viewpoints very stable, virtually unchanged over the past thirty years. Thirty-one percent are right or far right. Forty-three percent are moderate. Twenty-four percent are left. Or, or very left. So, and that hasn't changed. But what has changed is representative representation in the media and in the universities. So, in the universities, faculty are 60% left or far left, twice as high as the general population. 38% are moderate, about the same, and only 12% on the right or the far right. So, it's not. And, and has that changed? Now. Do, does that it's number? changed in 30 years. 30 years ago, it, it followed the population shift. Oh, okay. And in Canada, it's even more more acute. It's seventy three percent of the academic faculty identify as uh, left or far left. So it used to follow the population. So the general population, you know, those of us living in the United States or in Canada, we're we're really like a, a third on the right, third on the left, you know, middle third. And uh, but the universities are really two thirds on the left, and and the majority of media is two thirds on the left. So it's. It's new, you know, and, and it's easy to understand the emotional appeal of socialism because it's a viewpoint founded on compassion. We're going to take care of it, of others. You know, it plays well politically. It's righteous. It's very virtue signaling. But what's, you know, not talked about is the tremendous cost. It's like presenting a balance sheet with just the assets but not the, the liabilities. Like, for example, you know, if, if socialism is so great, let's take Venezuela. Since becoming socialist, 90% of Venezuelans live in poverty. It, just before COVID hit, inflation was like 10 million percent. That means that at the end of the year, a loaf of bread costs you 10 million times what it costs you at the beginning of the year. And the average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds <laughs> due to malnutrition. And it, this country has massive wealth, you know, an oil reserve, more oil reserves than the United States. So, you know, um, so, so yeah, there's been this massive shift to the left, and they're they're portraying socialism without the whole picture. They're just portraying the uh, feel good part of socialism without the it doesn't work part of socialism. A lot of people die part of socialism, you know. Right, and I, you also you also mentioned the media, which I think is a significant part of the perception, at least, because the media is is. You know, on television in the U.S., of course, it's highly polarized, right? I mean, you get the left mm-hmm. and you get right TV. There's no, there's no room. Nobody's interested in moderate TV because it's probably just not interesting, right? And then, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, if you look at social media, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, all these things, they, again, it's like what kind of, you know, what kinds of things get bigger responses, and what's more interesting, you know, to say that the rich are stealing from the poor or to have a moderate dialogue, right? So I think, I think obviously you get more clicks if you're polarizing. And I feel like that's part of the problem. What do you think of that? Oh, it's absolutely true. I, I used to write for the uh, Calgary Herald in the early 90s. And the, the thing was, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, misery and fear uh, sell and it gets people to do it. And, and you know, you can see it like, um, like here's the stat that shows you how skewed the media is. So if you talk to the FBI, 
you know, violent crimes has decreased by 49% over the last 30 years. And uh, if you talk to the Bureau of Justice, they would say it's declined by 74% for the same period. These are public records, right? At the same time, how the media reports violent crime has risen substantially. And even though um, uh, only 7% of all crimes committed uh, are for violent crimes, they get 75% of the press, right? So, so that just shows you how the press magnifies what will sell papers. And, you know, un- unfortunately, the press is entirely skewed to the left as a, as a group, you know, and uh, what sells in the news will always privilege certain understandings over others. And here we're privileging the understanding of the left. So a recent study by Arizona State and Texas A&M Universities on financial journalists, which should be right of center, you would think, found that 60% of them identified as left to very left, exactly like the universities these days. So, yeah, they're also profoundly to the left. And if you looked at media as a block, it's highly biased. Social media is alarming, too, because, you know, um, if you're not subscription-based, if you're advertising-based, you just want engagement. And, uh, you know, someone, someone like Facebook, it's like an echo chamber. Whatever grabs your attention feeds back at you. And But the algorithms don't know, are they grabbing your attention because you're angry or fearful? Or are they grabbing your attention because, you know, you really enjoy it? And we tend to kind of, you know, have this feedback loop that right now is really really promoting interests of the left without the whole story being out there. So what are, um, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the wealth uh, disparities. Uh, there, I, I would say that there's probably some real issues around wealth disparity uh, that are going to be of, of significant interest to, you know, to wealthy people too, even the, even the, you know, the Cook brothers got into this issue. What, what, how do we address those? And is there a responsibility to do that uh, from the wealthy? Yeah. Well, I've got a a lot of things to say about that. So, you know, the average CEO when a public company, the one that, you know, you got to hunt the rich, they're making too much money. They made 17.2 million last year average. And, And these are people who are creating, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs and billions and billions in income for everybody in the community. Average getting 17.2 million. That's great. That's like totally great. But then if you start looking at it and say, you know, what, what would it be like if we took a look at other people, you know, who are earning like movie stars? So let's just go and, and uh, take a look at, uh, um, m- you know, movie stars and uh, sports stars. You know, the people that make more money than the elite CEOs are the uh, top 10 sports players. Like, go look at them. You know, they're averaging 25 million. And then if you look at the top 10 musicians, they're averaging, you know, 180 to 200 million. But nobody demonizes them and says, oh my God, let's go after them. It just seems to be sport to go after the, uh, you know, the CEOs. And then the other thing is, Bill Clinton started this high high uh, compensation for CEOs because he tried to limit 
the uh, compensation you could pay a CEO. And when Bill Clinton brought this in, it was in the uh, 90s, he introduced Section 162 of the Internal Revenue Code. He thought it was going to limit what a CEO could earn, but what it did is it caused public companies to say, okay, we're not going to pay you more than a million dollars a year. And a good CEO is like a great athlete or a great musician. Like they perform, they create wealth for everybody, the shareholders, everybody. They started to now say, we're going to pay you that, but we're going to also pay you in options. And so if it's a year when a CEO cashes in their options, you know, turns them to shares, buys them and, and gets the gain, that year the CEO makes a lot of money. But what people are forgetting is that's a one-time transaction. You cash in your options, you don't get to cash in those same options next year. So, you know, even then the CEO pays kind of skewed. And then thirdly, a lot of people will look at somebody like a Bezos or a Tesla and say, this is the value of your asset. It's, it's not what you earned. It's the value of your asset. And um, you could say that same thing for a house owner. Like if you own a house and the value of your house goes up half a million, you didn't earn half a million. You don't have half a million sitting around in bags of cash that you can, you can spend. You could if you sold your home. But uh, you can only do it then and you can only do it one time. And I think the press often intermingles what your assets are worth versus what you actually made this year. And then they also miss the point that if you're Bezos or Tesla, you created that company and you, st- you only own a small part. So let's look at Amazon. So Bezos owns 9%. Who Bezos is primarily making money for are pension funds and institutions and governments. So if there's a teacher on a pension fund in California where you live, most likely that pension fund is owning and benefiting of the shares of Tesla or of uh, Amazon. And if Amazon goes up and say its market value goes up this morning by 10 billion, that means that um, 1 billion of those assets, Jeff Bezos has if he wants to sell, but it means that nine billion, like like nine times more, is there for the pension funds and the institution and all the shareholders to benefit, you know, the society. So I think the press misses that point, you know, too. And then lastly, if you look at how much wealth a company has to create in order for the owner to create it, nobody just sits in their bedroom or just as a single person. Maybe if you're a YouTuber, and by the way, the top ten YouTubers own way more than the top CEO. They earn double what the top CEO uh, earns. But but you, you can't create wealth without creating and paying a lot of people. So like even my company, so I sold two thirds of my company in 2018 and, I, and it, was a, um, it was over a hundred million in sales and people were like, oh, that's amazing. You're so lucky. And I'm like, if you look at the 25 years I ran the company until then, I paid out to my employees four billion dollars and then i got to keep just over 100 million at the end and that's after 25 years of work so i think people really misrepresent and misunderstand how much ceos make and and they don't put it in the context of how much other people make in society and they don't put it into the context of how much we make for other people and a good ceo you want to pay them that much because they're creating billions of dollars of wealth for everybody do you think um, part of this is um, a, you know, I, I think there's a, in general, with poor and middle class, there's just, you know, there is this feeling of 
that there is a finite amount of resources and the feeling that if somebody else does really well, it means that others are going to do worse. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people think, well, it must be nice. And if, if, you know, if I had money, it would just all work out. But you could, you could say, let's, let's take a look at how that really works. And let's take a look at lottery winners. Right. And uh, you know, 70% of lottery winners are in debt at the end of two years. They win millions of dollars. And then two years later, they're in debt. And it just shows you that giving someone money doesn't teach them how to be responsible or, or use money in, a, in an enabling way. And it also doesn't teach them how to magnify that and create more millions for everyone you know, and, uh, and their community. I think there's a real lack of understanding there and and ceos and entrepreneurs they don't make their money on the backs of everybody they make their money by paying everybody for the value they provide and it's a meaningful exchange of energy like if you're a worker for amazon and and you don't have a, a high school degree that's okay they have a job for you and the job has benefits and 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 it's a meaningful exchange of energy for you know how you showed up you know at the job if you went to school and and, and uh you went to um MIT or Harvard or, you know, the top, a top tier university and you have a master's, Amazon has a job for you too. And it's a meaningful exchange of energy for the investment that you've made, you know, to enter the workforce in that place. And, and so you're entering the company at different levels, but it's in relation to the investment and preparation, you know, you made. And then I don't know what it's like inside Amazon, but I would imagine it's like my company or any company that the cream rises to the top. And if you're good at the job, you, you'll find a way to the top and the, and the company will, will move you there or, or other companies will, you know, as, as um, alternative opportunities come available. So, yeah, I think this notion, I don't know where they get it, that, that everybody made it on the, the backs of other people. They didn't. We made it by paying other people fair money in a reasonable exchange of value for the services they provided. Yeah. And I think the other, I think the other thing is generally, I think a, a lack of appreciation for the fact that entrepreneurs, particularly in the United States and, you know, Canada and the Western world, um, you know, have raised the quality of life globally uh, for people over the last hundred years. I mean, in incredible amounts. And, uh, you know, and, and that's, again, it's, it's easy to, it's easy to look at somebody who's got money and, and vilify them. But I, I think facts are facts there. Right. And, you know, most billion, billionaires and millionaires made their fortune in their lifetime. There's not this whole crew that have forever money and just keep inheriting it and inheriting it. In fact, most people that inherit money will lose it by the time they have grandkids. Um, most of them made it in their lifetime. And you're right. If you look at things like the smartphone, uh, the computer, the electric car, um, the cold beverage that you drink, it was created by an entrepreneur a CEO, small or large, that started risking their time, money, and vision to bring something new in the world. And the other thing that people don't understand is when you're bringing something new into the world, like a Gates or a Bezos or a Musk, there's not this massive choir going, that's perfect, bring it on. There's a whole choir of dissenters 
you'll never land a rocket ship down. There will never be a computer on everybody's desktop. Nobody needs a phone that does more than dial a phone number. You have to, as an entrepreneur, you have to encounter all that resistance and, and work really, really hard. And then only if you're, if you did a really good job, do you actually get the rewards from it? You know, a lot of people, nobody talks about when a company goes under, you know, and somebody worked there, you know, worked very, very hard for a long period of years and nothing's, you know, nothing's there. Like, you know, nobody ever talks about the dramatic losses taken by the people who ran, you know, Yahoo in the last five years or the people who ran Blockbuster in the last five years of its existence. Right. Um, what do you, um, you know, what do you think taxes should be uh, for the, you know, and the other thing is we have to define this, right? It's, it's funny because, um, you know, a decade ago I, I was, uh, you know, I was practicing surgery and I thought I, I thought I made a lot of money and now I make a lot more money than I used to make. And, 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 and then there's, and then I moved to Montecito and I'm like, I, I make no money compared to these guys, you know, some of these guys around here. So you got to define that wealth level as well, because, um, you know, it just keeps there. There's a substantial difference between, um, you know, when somebody is called wealthy and then sort of the, uh, you know, the level above that. Right. Um, mm. But let, let's talk a little bit about taxes. What's fair? Because you all often hear about people saying uh, you want the rich to pay their fair share. And, you know, obviously we're talking about Canada and the U.S. We have different tax laws and different rates and all that. But what is fair? What's the Well, first of all, I never in my book or any of my opinions, they're not my opinions. I just relay what the, the facts is, the facts are and tax revenue for a country goes down when income taxes are over 50%. That that's that's just the stats. And the other thing people don't understand is that people are mobile. Capital is now mobile. People are mobile. And it's been that way forever. I mean, there was a time in France where they expelled all the Huguenots because they were Protestant and they all went over to England. And then all of a sudden, England's fortunes rose because you're sending a whole group of entrepreneurs out. Or, you know, you probably remember when Uganda sent out um, anybody, all the Indian merchants out of the country and, and reallocated their assets. And it was economic ruin. And so you can tax the wealthy, but they'll leave. So you know, the most uh, recent one was in France introduced its uh, crushing wealth tax from 1998 to 2006. And, you know, their wealth tax generated about over that time frame, 26 billion in new revenue for the government coffers. They lost so many millionaires and so many wealth creators who fled. You know, Gerard Depardieu is probably one of the, the more well-known actors who fled. And uh, that they lost, on average, $125 billion a year from wealth creators taking their money, their ideas, their wealth outside of the economy. And so when Macron came in, he uh, canceled it. And Macron's quote is that uh, it's all very good to want to spread the wealth, he said, but first you need to produce to create wealth before redistributing it. That's how it works. And he was bang on. So this whole idea of taxing the wealth, it doesn't play well. You know, you can even see people migrating from their head office or their their primary domicile from California to Texas um, because it just 
it just matters. You just pay a lot, a lot more tax. We have a lot of uh, Canadians who are domiciling in uh, Great Britain now, or Italy, or uh, Cayman Islands, and uh, just because the taxes in Canada have flipped over fifty percent, and and it's just not productive. That's the stats. It's not my opinion. That's that's where it fails. What are they up there? We, we are in the U.S. We know we have a pretty good tax idea. rate in Canada is 54 percent for for the for what for the is it all is it based on how much you make or is it yeah if you if you make over 90 grand every dollar over 90 grand is 54 percent tax we have we have provinces instead of states and so federal and uh, provincial tax would be 54 percent and there's not a province that really offers you a break on that do you have like long-term capital gains and capital gains and all that too or, or? We have capital gains. We have a 50% capital gains inclusion rate. So we pay 25% on uh, capital gains. Unlike the U.S., we don't get to deduct the uh, mortgage uh, interest on our on our mortgages. And um, But yeah, we have uh, capital gains and our, our dividend tax is uh, pretty much the same as if you bonused yourself. You know, it's uh, it got raised uh, recently. We have a very left of center um, government right now. And so taxes were hiked up considerably with the new uh, government. Do you have a lot of ways? I mean, do entrepreneurs have ways of, I mean, certainly in the, in the U.S., I mean, one of the, one of the great benefits to being in real estate for many of us entrepreneurs in that space is, you know, significant real, uh, tax uh, benefits, uh, and do you, do you guys have those kinds of benefits uh, if you're an entrepreneur or if you're, you know, or are you pretty much the same as a W-2 or equivalent of a W-2 no matter what? I think that when you have, um, w- when you start to make money as an entrepreneur and you've got an operating asset, there's always ways to optimize how you get the money. However, the the money will always be taxed eventually and, and most of it is actually tax deferral. And uh, you, you can defer uh, paying tax on something, but eventually it will come into your hands. And when it does, it gets fully taxed. And uh, sometimes it gets double taxed. And uh, so I think like every country, there's ways to optimize the cash flow so that while you're alive, you can enjoy more of the cash. But at some point, taxes will have to be paid. And I always tell everybody, you know, if you're paying taxes, yes, it's painful. And yes, it might be unfair that you're paying more than your fair share. Like in the U.S., the top tax bracket pays 27%, 27 times more than the bottom tax bracket per dollar earned. So it's not fair. It's, it's already very punitive towards people making more money. But you should still be happy because you only pay taxes when you make money. So it does mean you're, you're making money. But yeah, if it's over 50%, it's not productive for the economy. So, um, so what was the, you know, what kind of feedback have you gotten from people on your book? You know, the, the, the book has just come out, but uh, what what I'm getting from the book is, A, a lot of surprise. I didn't know that. and uh, But m- more surprising to me is I'm getting a lot of reinforcement. People saying, I always thought there was more to the story. I always knew there was more. And, you know, when I first started promoting it on LinkedIn just recently, um, I thought it was going to get, you know, trolled or slammed by people on the left. And instead, um, people on the left mostly said, you know, I view this as as not only a kind uh, way to talk about this, but also a very generous uh, way to talk about this. Like like, uh, what wealth creators do in society is very generative. 
And uh, I didn't know that. I really appreciate knowing it. So, so far it's been warm, but I am sure the woke left is going to at some point read the book in horror. And then we'll see. <laughs> uh, the title alone is, is going to make, it's going to, you know, liable to get you canceled. Uh, you know, it's uh, in defense of wealth. Right, a modest rebuttal to the charge: the rich are bad for society. I, uh, I am, I'm, I'm certainly uh, interested in it. You, you also have a uh, uh, website. It's uh, www.bullenbooks.com. What is that? Just where this book lives, or is there other things there? No, I do have another book because I, I, I do run a very big consulting company and I, I wrote a book called High Velocity and it was just to help consultants have more engagement with their clients. But that's an old book, it's 30 years ago. So this website is, is entirely dedicated to in defense of wealth. It, this podcast is going to go up there as soon as it airs. My blog is up there. Articles that have been picked up by the media are up there. So it's entirely along this thought line. And so where the book ends, my blog continues. And it's just, uh, th there's no end to the amount of amazing research that's totally contrary to the narrative of the woke left on how much wealthy people do for society. Like you can look at, at China's uh, cost of living or, or income per capita when they had no billionaires. And then you can look at their income, their income per capita now. And, 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 you know, next to the United States, China has the most billionaires on the planet. And by introducing these uh, free economic zones in China, the wealth that has been created by the uh, wealth creators, China, China just made an area for them and the wealth creators showed up, is staggeringly beneficial. And, and if you look globally, you know, what's not reported Every year, over 50 million get, people get lifted out of poverty. In the United States, the number of people lifted out of poverty, you know, from when uh, Johnson was into now, it's staggeringly successful. You'll never read that anywhere, but you'll read about it in my blogs. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to uh, digging in there a little bit. Again, it's uh, Derek Bullen. Uh, the book is available, I assume, uh, everywhere in defense of wealth. The, uh, <clears throat> is it the usual suspects, Amazon and uh I'll, 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 wherever the people buy books. I, I would or... say Amazon. You know, Amazon is just the fountain of youth for retail sales, and uh, just saying it's on Amazon is enough. Yeah, <laughs> everybody we'll do. knows how to get we'll, the Amazon. We'll, right? We'll do. We'll do. You, did you do an Audible book yet? It's coming out. Very it's coming good. out. Because you know, a lot of us, uh, a lot of us physician types and stuff, are a little bit too lazy to actually read anymore. So we have to listen to things. So. <laughs> yeah, it'll be up for sure. Good talking to you, Derek. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for being on Wealth, Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you, Buck. Take we'll good be, care. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Of course, you know, Derek's obviously done pretty well himself. And it is a useful thing to think about. And I think a useful a useful commentary, particularly when you hear a lot of the rhetoric from the socialists and, you know, from people who are bashing people with money, because they think it's not as simple as that. And of course, people would like to make it, but interesting topic. And I, I hope you enjoyed it. Before we uh, go, I do want to remind you that uh, we did have, of course, we had this great event, you know, not too long ago in Phoenix. And that uh, was our meetup that we have biannually. The next one will be sometime in the fall, probably in Dallas. But if you are interested in being more involved with our community in the interim, definitely check out Wealth Formula Network, which is the way you sign up for that is by signing up for our course. Um, 
your roadmap to real wealth on wealthformularoadmap.com. And that's a course, and the course leads ultimately to, you know, gives you a lot of the basics, and then you join our social media group on Facebook, and uh, we have live calls on Zoom every other week. It's really a useful if you want to, you know, go a little bit deeper into the world of personal finance and have people in your lives who are interested in this stuff too. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.